Pastor Dave. I'm glad to be with you again this morning. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18. If you don't have a physical Bible, you can open up on your phone as well. Uh, I'm using the ESV. There's many faithful English translations. We're spoiled to death in the English language. So that's something to give thanks for. I'm also giving thanks for uh, my wife and all the gals getting to be away at the retreat. Uh, for those of you who have wives who are away, I... Before the sermon, just for free, I want to give you an encouragement, guys. I want to encourage you. First of all, when she comes home, uh, she just had an awesome ex experience, and you get to sort of be like uh, some, some tinder that gets to be close to the fire. So listen. Hear about what God was doing. Listen. Celebrate it. Celebrate what God was doing with your wife and among the women there. Hear that. Uh, do not immediately talk about all the things that were difficult while she was away. <laughs> Maybe don't even say that at all. Listen, celebrate, give thanks to God with her. So, alrighty, we're looking at Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Jesus, authority, discipleship. Today we're going to see Jesus is more. He is more. And because he's more, he's worthy of more from us. Uh, he's calling us to a radical sort of obedience. Many of us uh, will, will use that word radical, rightly so, when we see the call of discipleship that Jesus would invite us to, that he is calling us to. At the same time, though, we are living in ordinary realities. The ordinary realities of 2022 in Larimer County. I think of this weekend. I took my son and daughter to karate class, taekwondo. We are yellow belts. And so we have our, our geese and our white pants and our yellow belts tied. And we go and we learn karate together. The next morning, I make them pancakes. We do a lot of laundry and watch the Olympics. We do a little bit more laundry. We pick up dog poop in the backyard. Play Mario Kart. Does following Jesus, the radical call to discipleship, mean we stop picking up dog poop in the backyard? We stop taking kids to karate? We leave the ordinary things of Larimer County life in 2022 because they're not radical enough. What does following Jesus mean? That's something that we're going to face today in this passage, a tension that we'll feel. There's a real tension because there are two things that are absolutely true. One, Jesus is calling us to follow him wherever he bids us to go, right when he bids us to go there. <laughs> At the same time, Jesus, for the most part, calls you to be where you are. To not leave the world, but to be in the world for his glory. And learning that lived tension is one of the works of ongoing discipleship and following Jesus in the day-to-day. -day. Grocery lists laundry, basketball coaching, minivans, these are not separate from your life of discipleship. They will become the context where we follow Jesus. But we could fall into one of two ditches. We could either miss this call to radical discipleship. We could, in the midst of ordinary life, we could miss out on opportunities to tell our neighbors of all Jesus has done for us, to forget that he's the one we live for. That when I go to karate, the 
the one that we call master that we're learning under isn't ultimately my master, but Jesus is while I'm there. And secondly, we can fall into this ditch, on the other hand, of thinking we can't follow Jesus where we are. That it's just not radical enough here. We have to go elsewhere to follow Jesus. Many of us have a mindset of mission happens elsewhere. We have missionaries come home. I'm so thankful for our church's heart for missions. But do you realize that what missionaries do is what you're called to do right here? To live for Jesus where you are. They're just doing it elsewhere. (laughs) Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? That's what this passage is ultimately going to be about. For the record, if you take those two questions with you, it'll be fruitful as you read the Gospels. Who is Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? In this passage, we're going to see Jesus is more. (laughs) He's more glorious than we could have imagined. He's more humble than we might even want to admit. And he's calling us after him to a more costly discipleship than we may even be ready for. But he's with us. So let's pray and ask him for help as we go into this passage. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your challenge. Thank you for your encouragement. We need you now. So come and speak by your word and spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the first uh, bit of scripture that we see here in verses 18 to 22, we're going to see challenges to two disciples. One is called a scribe explicitly, but then it says another disciple came. So we could assume that the scribe thought he was a follower of Jesus. We just don't know what comes at the end of his story. It's not written for us. But look with me in verse 18. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Remember, Jesus had a mission not only to speak to big crowds, but to form a new community. He's forming disciples The number 12 that we're going to see here uh, in a a chapter or so when he calls the 12 after him. It's not coincidental that he called 12. He's reconstituting the people of God, a new Israel. And he's going to form them. So he's going to spend time alone with these disciples. Verse 19, though, a scribe comes up to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Interestingly, At no place in the gospel, according to Matthew, does a person call Jesus teacher and proceed to follow him or to adore him as Lord. We don't know this scribe's story because we don't see the end of it. But it invites us to wonder when Jesus responds, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is more humble than the savior, than the Messiah These people were ready for. They were ready for a Messiah who would come and conquer. A great military commander. But Jesus is saying he's more humble. You might want to follow a fox instead. He has a hole. You might want to go hang out with the birds. They have a nest. I've got nowhere to lay down my head. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we find that there were uh, some who would support his ministry. So sometimes he would have a place to lay down his head. Luke chapter 8, there were women who supported him in his ministry. But oftentimes, Jesus, an itinerant preacher who called disciples to leave their nets and follow him, a carpenter who left his carpentry to go and preach, he had nowhere to lay his head. More humble 
this Jesus is, and the cost of following him means leaving comfort behind. Verse 21 then, another disciple says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now this is not only uh, something that we would all relate to, maybe that brings out feelings, uh, maybe even from recent life, you've had to bury your father and the heaviness, the weight of that. But in the first century, there was also a, a strong religious component to this because to be just, to be righteous in a first century Jewish context, you buried the dead. Even if it wasn't your relative, you would see that their relatives were buried. That was a way you showed love. That's a way you honored your father and your mother in a way you awaited the hope of resurrection. But Jesus says to him, shockingly, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I just wonder what I would have done if I was the man. What a call. What a radical call. It's possible. Some commentators will suggest that when Jesus says, leave the dead, he's speaking metaphorically, leave the spiritually dead who miss out on who I am to wait around and follow the customs and bury their dead. But nevertheless, he's calling this man to set aside something he knows is not only a custom, but it's a way of honoring his father and it's a way of practicing his faith as he understood it in his day. And he's saying, I'm an even greater priority. Follow me. Let someone else bury your father. Jesus is incredibly humble, calling us to a path that calls us to trust this humble man who has no place to lay his head. And what do we do with that in 21st century Larimer County? Many of us are in that tension. Does this mean that, you know, I don't spend Saturdays doing laundry, you know? Does this, what does this mean for me? The first thing that I would say is, is the thing that we need to recognize is that Jesus did say this. A good principle of Bible reading is when you are reading a historical narrative, first realize that this is written down so that we will know that these things happened. Jesus said this to this man. It was his call to him. And it is for our instruction now. The question is, thinking today, if Jesus were to call you after him, would you? And we pray for mercy and grace. We pray that we might see who he is. He's not just this one who was so humble and had no place to lay his head. Interestingly, in verse 20, the son of man. This is the first time Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. This would have brought out in your Jewish ears, if you were a first century listener, memories of, of Psalm 8, for example, where the incredibly noble place of humanity in God's design is celebrated. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he goes on in the psalm and says, who am I that you are mindful of me, the son of man, that you should care for me? God has this incredible place in his design, human beings to have dominion over the, the fish of the seeds, over, over the birds of the heavens, to bear fruit and multiply in his world. We have an incredible role. So perhaps son of man is just referring to humanity, many people think when they read son of man. 
But Jesus means more, we're going to find out. Not less. We're going to keep reading. In the next passage, in verse 23 to 27, this really comes out. It explodes in your face if you think Jesus is a mere human. He gets into a boat. His disciples follow him. That's the pattern. Where the master goes, the disciples follow. Well, verse 24, Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Again, the humanity of Jesus, tired, he sleeps. But look what happens next. They went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he says to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. Jesus is more. He is more <laughs> than this humble man who has no place to lay his head. He's one who speaks, and it's like creation remembers that voice. We heard that voice before. When it said, let there be, and it was. And the winds and the sea obeyed. I hope you find comfort and encouragement as a 21st century person who, like me, often feels like I have a little faith that I'm bringing to Jesus. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples for their little faith. He questions their little faith, but he doesn't rebuke it. He rebukes the wind and the waves. The disciples actually got something right in this passage, I want you to realize. With their concern in the midst of a storm, real concern with a real storm, not a metaphorical storm, a real storm. They go to the one, the only one, who they think might be able to do something about it. They go to Jesus with their little mustard seed of faith. And here we note that we're not called to some sort of radical, absolute, perfect certainty as we follow Jesus, <laughs> we bring to him the little faith we have, and he is the object of the faith. That's what matters. That's why a mustard seed can move a mountain. Not, a, not, not because your mustard seed faith is powerful in and of itself, that my believing is powerful. It's because the object of our faith, the one in the boat with you, in the midst of the storm, he has authority over it to speak a word and it would all be calm. And so you can bring him your mustard seed of faith. I find that incredibly encouraging. But I do want to challenge, there's a, uh, the most common sermon that you will find. You can just go Google this passage later and you can save yourself time if you don't want to listen to it. But you will hear this very often uh, based on this passage. So you see, Jesus calms the storms of our lives. And it's such a nice message. And sometimes he does. But the point of this passage is that he did historically calm the storm. Because who is he? <laughs> That's the point. What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? That's what this passage is revealing to us, who Jesus is. Historically, he did calm the sea, but he doesn't always, does he? You've been through this. Many of you are going through storms that are metaphorical storms right now. You've lived through 
very literal storms and prayed to God for help and he's delivered you. But he doesn't always deliver us out of every trouble. But he is with us and available to us, even available to us when we have little faith. And we might even have a slightly stronger faith because we can answer the question the disciples asked, who is this man? What sort of man is this? That question is answered surprisingly in the next few verses by demons. Verse 28, when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce. No one could pass that way. Now, before we get into the story, this is a, a story that brings out questions. Questions for me as a, a Bible reader. Uh, questions for many of our neighbors who, who have doubts and struggles. I just want to address those for a moment. Uh, one of the things you'll notice as you read the Gospels is that several of the Gospels tell the same stories. And this is one of those stories that will appear in uh, the three gospel uh, accounts that see together. They're called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you'll notice as you read them, you'll see Gadarenes, you'll see Gerasenes, you'll see Gergesenes. And which one is it? Which country was he in? And we could get into the discussions of that. Perhaps it's a result of spelling errors by scribes in some cases, as they've been handed down to us. But ultimately, we can't really know. But it's in this region close to the Sea of Galilee. We can narrow it down to a couple village areas. That's not a big issue, ultimately. The next issue, though, in the text that does cause me to wonder, it's an unanswerable question as far as I'm concerned. Here we see two demon-possessed men. In Mark, you're going to see one. In Luke, you're going to see one. Matthew has a habit of seeing double. I don't know why. Seriously, you read Matthew and compare him with Mark and Luke. He sees two. He, uh, blind Bartimaeus on the way uh, into Jerusalem. In Mark chapter 10, Matthew sees two blind men. Why? I don't know. The scholars, they, they, they have interesting discussions for pages and pages on why they think this is. The, the, the most appealing to me that might be right, but I don't know if it's right, is that perhaps Matthew is truly recording that there was someone else who was there who was healed and the others didn't record, didn't happen to record that other person. They focused on one. That's possible. And then secondly, that Matthew was interested in establishing that these things happened with two witnesses, because for a Jewish person, establishing something on the basis of two witnesses was important. But those are both conjectures, and we really can't know. You have to ask Matthew when you go to heaven. But for some of our neighbors who really struggle in their faith with whether or not the Bible is the word of God, they'll see something like this, and then it'll be like almost like this house of cards starts to fall down because they think that something is wrong in the Bible. I just want to encourage you, if that's you today, if, you're, if you are struggling in your faith with the Bible, if you've had people picking at the Bible and its authority and whether or not it's the word of God, this passage isn't undoing that. Matthew had a purpose in speaking of two and it doesn't necessarily undermine anything the others said. It's not even on the level of something you could really call a contradiction. It's just a puzzle. 
And for those who, on the other hand, look for every reason to doubt, you like to play that game, I doubt it, you know? I've, I've played this game before. You know, uh, you, you could uh, try to uh, pr prove to someone, for example, if I tried to prove to you that Christina Hoffelmeyer is my wife, you could say, I doubt that. You know, I, I could even go so far as, as showing you our marriage certificate with her name. You could still say, I doubt that's real. You fabricated it. And we could go on and on and on and on and on, and you could find a reason to doubt it. If that's you today, I'm just telling you, you are utterly missing the point. The point is the one who is revealed in this passage, Jesus. The point isn't whether it's two or one or Gadarene or Gerasene or whatever. Jesus is the point. <laughs> I just hope you would see him. So don't miss him. Whether you're lacking in faith, whether you're looking for a reason to lack in faith, whether you're just an ordinary person in Larimer County, look to Jesus with me in this passage. These demons from these men cry out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? <laughs> the first time Jesus is recognized as the Son of God coming from the mouth of demons. This is like if you're a politician and you get your public endorsement from the mob, right? Is the, I don't think this is good publicity. And yet, at the same time, the demons see and they know and they fear. They are begging for mercy because they see the one standing before them. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Verse 30, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, please send us into the pigs. And Jesus says, go. Again, a word. And they leave these men who were haunted for who knows how many years, who were cut off from community. These men whose lives were destroyed are now free. But these pigs now have these demons within them. And the demons drive them down a steep bank into the sea, and they drown in the waters. Oftentimes when I've read this, I've really struggled with that. What about those pigs? What about the herdsmen who we're going to see in the next verse? I could understand them being kind of upset about my pigs, my livelihood, right? Two things. Again, I don't really know what to do with it still. <laughs> but I'll try to draw, draw us back to what I do know. The things that are possible, first of all, is that Jesus was freeing even the herdsmen to live a life in community with his people. Because being herdsmen of an unclean animal means they couldn't have community with the people of God. That's possible. But nevertheless, what we do know in this passage is that Jesus, Jesus is healing two men and freeing them, freeing them from demonic oppression. He could provide any number of ways for these men to find a new way to provide for themselves as they would turn and follow him in his, in his radical call. But if we only think about the pigs and the livelihood of the herdsmen, we miss the point again. And that's what the town did. They missed the point Seeing a loss of economic provision through these pigs, seeing the, the, the fearsome might of Jesus that's not under our control and isn't answering to us, they beg him to leave. 
we don't really want that here. Please, go away. Jesus is more, more authoritative than you could imagine. And he's calling you to trust him. Even when he does things you don't understand, he's calling you to trust him. Even, even when he calls you outside of comfort and economic provision, he calls you to trust him. Even when he brings people into your community that are uncomfortable, he calls you to trust, them, trust him. He is more. And in this last passage we'll look at, we're going to skip over into nine because it is connected to what comes before. The, just as, as you know, I'm, many of you will know this, but the, the chapter numbers aren't airtight compartments, right? This is a continuous narrative. In the earliest manuscripts, these numbers weren't there. They're there for our help from later pastors and teachers of the scripture. But getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city, Capernaum, so that had become his base by this point. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Another question that I don't know how to answer well for you today, he saw their faith and says to him, my son, your sins are forgiven. Just wrestle with that for a while. But going on, he said, your sins are forgiven. Don't miss that. How on earth could he say that? Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. That's the first of three times we see that word appear. The next time we'll see it is in the charge that will lead to Jesus' crucifixion. Blasphemy is the thing that leads him to the cross. The final time will be when the people are blaspheming him because he is the Son of God. And on the cross, they were blaspheming him. But they say he is blaspheming, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, <laughs> or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man, there that title is again, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose. And he went home. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. That is stuff that only God does. God is the only one who can forgive. That's what any first century Jewish person, any Jewish person from, from ancient of days down to the present would know. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is saying to this man, your sins are forgiven. And he's demonstrating his authority by saying, get up and walk. Go home. He is the son of man. Here we see that what was on Jesus' mind as he referred to himself as son of man was more than being a human being. Much more, but not less. He is the one revealed in Daniel 7. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. 
and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He is an eternal king. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. All nations will bow to him. He's a forgiver of sins. Who is eternal? Who forgives sins? God with us. Jesus. He is more. But what does it mean to follow him? I want you to note what he says to the paralytic. And I come back to our question of what do we do in Larimer County with our ordinary lives? Can we follow Jesus here? Jesus says to the paralytic, rise, take up your mat and, and go home. In parallel passage in Luke chapter 8, 38 and 39, it shares a little bit more about the man who was demon-possessed. These two men, as we find them in Matthew. The man from whom the demons had gone begged to go with Jesus, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home. Tell them how much God has done for you. And the man went away, and he told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Again, <laughs> Jesus, God with us. Go home in Larimer County. Take your minivan to karate class and share how much Jesus has done for you. Go home and do laundry. Pray over your kids that they might know all that Jesus has done for you. Share it with them. Leave a heritage with them. You hear what I'm saying? Jesus is calling you to follow him here. Coach Little League. Go home. And follow Jesus because he is more. And your neighbors who perhaps have a vision of Jesus, you know, they don't want all your rules, you know, but you can tell them, no, Jesus is so much more. He is more than rules. He's my savior. He, he forgives sins. And he's not only all glorious and forgiving sins, he paid the cost. He is so humble that he would lay down his life for me, for you. He would bleed, give his last breath for you. That's how bad he wants you. He wants you to be whole, included, welcomed into community. You don't have to bring him anything great. You can bring him a tiny mustard seed of faith. And he'll make you his own and he'll give you new life. Speak forgiveness, eternal life over you. He is so much more, more glorious than we could ever imagine. He's more humble. <laughs> He's calling you to follow him, Faith Church. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he would extend a call to people like us, ordinary, lacking in faith, sinful, hurting, broken. And you would offer us exactly what we need. You offer us yourself in Jesus. Help us to take hold of him as he's taking hold of us. We pray that in his name. Amen. Amen.